More than 20% of people in faith communities are survivors of childhood sexual abuse. But sadly, churches are often the last place a victim of abuse can find help and healing. I'm Kelly Downing, and my dream is a church where survivors like me and so many others can feel safe, be heard, and find healing. Until that happens, this is Survivor Sanctuary, a podcast for survivors of sexual abuse who are navigating the road to healing and for anyone who wants to be a part of the major heart renovation the church needs so that our faith communities can truly become sanctuaries for survivors. Welcome to another episode of Survivor Sanctuary. This is Kelly, and oh my goodness, I am so excited for today's episode of the podcast. I always love podcasting, but today is a special episode because I have a guest on the show today, Jimmy Hinton, who has been really instrumental in my own story as far as coming forward about the fact that I was sexually abused by someone in the church and reporting that person. Uh, I just sent like a Hail Mary kind of an email to Jimmy at one point when I first started this process of trying to decide if I should disclose who my abuser was. And I, I just messaged him on Facebook because he was one of the only people out there who I could find that was talking about sexual abuse within the church and he didn't see my message for a while and then when he did he was just like such an instrumental part of me being able to come forward and tell my story and, and really Jimmy I won't say he didn't do a whole lot because he did but he didn't physically have to do a lot it was just the fact that he listened he believed what I said and he just validated the, the, what I was going through and the things that I was struggling with as far as sharing my story and he was like listen you're not crazy for how you feel about this you're not crazy for what you think about the way this church is responding like you're you're right on and they're not doing the right thing. And he was just there to give some much needed advice. And just as a person who was like, listen, I'm in your corner. And that was so invaluable to me when I began to share my story. And when I first decided to disclose the fact that I had been sexually abused by this person in the church. So that was like five years ago now, maybe a little bit more that I had my introduction to Jimmy. We've now had the chance to meet in person at the Courage Conference last year which was an awesome experience, and I'm so excited to welcome him onto the podcast today. And I do want to say before we get into this that if you have not been following Jimmy, I know a lot of the people who listen to this podcast are very familiar with Jimmy Hinton. Uh, he is one of the very outspoken advocates for sexual abuse survivors in the church. He speaks out about how churches can do better at preventing sexual abuse and at responding. And we're going to talk a lot about that with him today. But if for whatever reason you're new to the podcast, maybe you're new to the world of advocacy, or you're just starting to think about, you know, delving into your own story of sexual abuse, maybe you haven't heard of Jimmy. And I just want to encourage you, you got to follow him and read the stuff that he writes and listen to his podcast with his wonderful mom, Clara Hinton. They just put together an awesome podcast every single week. And it's such an encouragement. Listen, I know how it feels when you're trying to find people that kind of get it when you start to talk about sexual abuse or you try to advocate, you try to speak up about the injustices that are 
happening uh, to people within the church and even outside of the church. That deafening silence that we get from so many people, and it's so frustrating. And when I was feeling that way, like Jimmy was there with his knowledge of sexual abuse, his knowledge of how abusers operate, his knowledge of how churches miss the mark so often. And it was just something that was like, getting a cold drink of water when you'd been wandering in the desert for like six weeks. Okay. You'd be dead after six weeks, but honestly, that was how it felt. It was like, oh my gosh, somebody who gets it and it's no nonsense. And he's just like, doesn't mince words. He says what needs to be said. And he's just a great advocate for sexual abuse survivors within the church. So if you are a person who has survived sexual abuse, if you are a pastor, I want to say this, If you're a pastor or you're a church leader of any kind, or you just go to church where there are other people, especially children, it is a great idea to follow Jimmy. He's a wealth of knowledge, and you're going to learn things from him that are just going to open your eyes and amaze you. And I might sound like I'm fangirling a little bit right now, but it's just just the reality. He's an awesome advocate, and people who have survived sexual abuse need more advocates like Jimmy Hinton within the church. I'm going to link to Jimmy's blog, to his website, his uh, Facebook, and his Twitter accounts. I will link to his podcast as well, so you'll be able to find all of the things that you need as far as links go uh, in the show notes. So just look there if you want to learn more about how you can find Jimmy. Well, without further ado, I am super excited to welcome onto the podcast for the first time, Jimmy Hinton. Hey, Jimmy, how are you? Hey, I'm well, Kelly. How are you? I'm doing so good, and I've been so excited about this interview. I've actually been planning this interview for the little over a year that I've had my podcast, and I'm finally making it happen. So um, I really nice. appreciate you coming on today. Absolutely. Well, it's it's kind of nice to volley this back because we had you as a guest on our podcast. Um, you did. So it, yeah. So it's nice to uh, nice to be guests on each other's podcasts. It is. It's a lot of fun. I had a great time um, on your podcast and I appreciated that opportunity. And I feel like I bring you up. Your name is dropped almost every single episode of Survivor Sanctuary. (laughs) So I figured it was only fitting that if I'm going to do that all the time, I should have you on the show. So no doubt. Okay. So I mentioned that I bring you up a lot on the podcast. And so I have a feeling that so many of the people listening have heard the name Jimmy Hinton and have probably listened to your podcast. But I know that we have listeners from different parts of the world, and there's always a chance that somebody doesn't know your background. So I'm not going to ask you to like delve into the minute details of your story, because I know you've done that a lot, and I can direct people to some really great podcast episodes where they can get more details. But can you just give us a little bit of your background and your story of how you got into sexual abuse advocacy within the church? Sure. So in a nutshell... I am number six of 11 kids. Uh, We grew up in a very big family in uh, Shanksville, Pennsylvania. Shanksville is um, a tiny little town of about 230 people, um, and that became the resting place for Flight uh, United 93 on September 11th, whenever the brave passengers uh, decided to overtake the cockpit and uh, not allow the fourth plane to meet its destination. Uh, that plane crashed exactly one mile from the house that I grew up at. Uh, my mom still lives there. And I live 10 miles away in Somerset, where if you remember in 2002, 
The following summer, there were nine coal miners who got trapped in a mine for 72 hours. Yes. And um, that was just three miles from where I live currently in Somerset. So anyway, in 2000, let's see, 2009, I started preaching full time at the church that I grew up at where my dad was the preacher uh, here in Somerset. <clears throat> and uh, I'm actually still there to this day. And in 2011, two years into my ministry, my youngest sister at the age of 21 disclosed to me that she had been sexually abused by my dad uh, when she was very young. And, um, you know, absolutely devastated our family. And uh, I decided in that moment that I was going to take action and do something about it. And uh, so I told Alex that I believed her. And after the weekend, I had a wedding to perform, uh, to officiate, and I had a, a sermon to preach on Sunday. And then on Monday morning, I was in our local police department with my mom, and we were reporting our dad. Um, and so he was called in for questioning a few days later, and he had confessed to molesting 23 victims, all prepubescent. And some of those, uh, he was molesting up to the point when he got caught. And some of those young victims were in my church. Uh, so that added a whole nother layer of um, just destruction and um, worry and anxiety and uh, and lament and all those, you know, anger, all those different emotions started coming to the surface pretty quickly. And it, you know, it left me with a, a, a very broken family and a very broken church in the matter of a, a disclosure that, that lasted 15 minutes. Right. Um, and that, you know, that one disclosure changed the course of all of our lives forever. Uh, and my dad is now uh, currently serving a life sentence. He got a 30 to 60 year sentence in state prison. Uh, so he will be 91 years old whenever he's first eligible for parole. Wow. Um, and so that uh, really launched me into advocacy work because uh, I was really haunted by the fact that none of us knew that he was abusing anybody. You know, we, we had no clue. And not only was he abusing very small children, prepubescent children, but he was doing it in our own home to my own sisters. And it just added this this layer of rage and shame and turmoil inside. Like, how did we not see this? How did we not know that for for 40 years of his life, he was doing this to, to these little children, to dozens of them, hundreds of times each? And we didn't have a clue. So I wanted to find out how we missed it. And, you know, what is it about us that that made us blind to the abuse? And what is it what is it about abusers that makes them so capable of getting away with these crimes for so many years? And so I've been speaking up pretty much started uh, maybe two months after I reported my dad was the first time that I spoke publicly uh, doing doing a training on abuse. And I want to get into the how did we miss it part, because I think that's uh, that's so fascinating to me. And I know that you do a lot of research and you basically I mean, you've been immersed in it personally. So 
Um, I want to get to that, but I have to say this because it's something I think about every time I hear your story and it's kind of a source of like, it, it kind of makes me feel a little bit of shame. And, um, I don't know if it's because of how we're basically taught as, as victims of sexual abuse or how the church teaches on forgiveness. But when you say that your sister disclosed to you that she had been abused and that was on a Friday night and on Monday morning, you and your mom were at the police station. I think of my own family, like my dad's a pastor. He pastored for the majority of my life. And if my sister had come to me and said the same thing, I don't know that that would have been my initial reaction. I believe wholeheartedly that it was the right one. But when I think of myself and of everything that I've been taught, I, I always think like, would that have been my initial reaction? Oh, we have to go to the police? Or would I have been like, well, this happened when you were very young. So I'm not sure that we need to report it. Like, I don't like, I don't know how to reconcile those feelings. And it, it makes me feel terrible. But to know that you just made that decision, was there any part of you that was just like, maybe we're not supposed to just go straight to the police, but there's something else that we can do. And why do you think that we're almost conditioned in the church to try and think of a different solution than just reporting? Boy, those are some loaded questions. Um, (laughs) You're welcome. But they're really good. Um, Because uh, let me back up a little bit to to my seminary uh, training, because, you know, I, I went to school for nine years. I have a BA in Bible and religion, so I, you know, I went to college for four years, four and a, four and a half really, because I like to drag things out. <laughs> I procrastinate. Um, Same. Yeah. So then I took a year off. Uh, I drove truck coast to coast because I I did not want to go back to school. I've never loved school. I just, I like I've always been a mediocre student at best. And I just didn't know what I wanted to do, what direction I wanted to take in my life. So I was like, I'm just going to sit a year out and drive truck. So I did that. The year was up. I started seminary and I went there for four and a half years. And I didn't have one single class. I can't remember one lecture where they mentioned anything about abuse in the church, any kind of abuse, spiritual abuse, domestic abuse, sexual abuse. Not one. And they didn't talk about mandated reporting because that just wasn't on the radar of people. Like this was pre-Jerry Sandusky and we just didn't talk about it. So, you know, I legally I was a mandated reporter in Pennsylvania, but I didn't know that. So when I reported my dad, I had no idea that I was a mandated reporter and I could have I could have gotten locked up for not reporting it. You know, well, technically I couldn't because Alex was, she was an adult at the time. Right. But, um, you know, I didn't know. I didn't know anything about mandated reporting. I didn't know what that process looked like. I didn't know any of that. But to answer your other question, no, we didn't think of any other options. We couldn't think of any other options. We're like the, the, the seriousness of those allegations required something beyond what I was ever capable of. And, and I think part of the reason why churches in practice do otherwise is because they're so used to trying to fix things. You know, like pastors are fixers, and that's not necessarily a good thing. You know, it, it can be. It's not, a, it's not always a bad thing, but, you know, there is such a thing as too much of a good thing. 
where they just feel like there's nothing that nothing that God can't transform. There's nothing that God can't handle. There's nothing that we can't just pray to God and pour out our hearts. And, and if we believe it, you know, it's already been answered. And so churches theologically migrate toward um, reconciliation, restoration, and redemption. Right. And that's that's the first thing that's on their radar because because we serve a God who redeemed us. And and I think what happens is the easy thing, whether they know it or not, whether whether church leaders will admit it or not, they take the easy path almost always. So the easy thing is to say, well, this was in the past um or Maybe you're just remembering things differently from when you were a kid. Maybe there were some misunderstandings. Um, you know, it couldn't be him. And even if it was him, you know, this was 20 years ago. This was, you know, 18 years ago. And he's not showing any signs of being like that now. So, you know, why don't we just pray about this? That's a typical church response. Right. That was never going to be my response. My response immediately was like, this guy, this guy hurt Alex deeply. Um, he poisoned her. Um, he poisoned everything that she should have known about love. Uh, you know, all the normal, all the normal components to love about being protectors and, and, caring for your own flesh and blood, your own child, um, all of that he poisoned, severely poisoned. And there was a very broken person sitting in front of me who I happened to be uh, very close to. And so I could, I could feel that pain pouring out of Alex. And there was no other option. There was nothing inside of me that wanted to handle that myself. Not an ounce of me or mom thought that there was anything inside of us that was capable or willing to handle that ourselves. Uh, and so we handed it over to professionals who are very good at what they do. And we went to, we went to the police and we would have been there sooner if, uh, if it wasn't a weekend because our, our local police department, uh, they don't have office hours on the weekend. Yeah. And I think, I feel like I need to just you know, just for sake of clarification a little bit, because I'm, I mean, it might've triggered somebody to hear me say that. I mean, I'm a, a person who's a survivor of sexual abuse and I'm very outspoken against sexual abuse within the church and abusers, but it's just something that seems so deeply ingrained in us that you, you do look for the redemption in everything. And I, I don't know, as possibly as being a victim of sexual abuse, you get so used to kind of not focusing on what's been done to you and maybe a feeling of unworthiness that almost makes it like, well, who am I? Cause that's a feeling that I've had a lot in regards to the person who abused me. And it took many, many years for me to come forward. Um, even after I knew that, you know, something horrible had happened to me, it took so long because there was just this feeling of what right do I have to ruin somebody's life? So there has to be a different way to deal with this. So maybe my feelings on that come from the fact that I've been a victim of abuse and you kind of have that, there's just feelings of like unworthiness sort of ingrained there. So I just wanted to make that clarification. Yeah. I think that's a good point too. You know, victims very rarely 
come forward right away for a whole host of reasons. Um, but again, I was, I was not taught that. Um, I didn't know that at the time. Um, but that never crossed my mind. I never once did I think, well, why would you wait this long, Alex? You know, this happened when you were five years old and you're 21 now, why would you wait that long? That never crossed my mind. Right. Um, of course it takes a long time to talk about it. That's common sense. And I, and I think that's something that if there are any church leaders listening to this, um, they need to know that trying to comprehend what happened to you in the first place, trying to process that as a child takes a very, very long time. Right. Um, and so church leaders need to, to move beyond themselves and, and stop trying to hurry this up and be like, well, you know, let's, let's clean this up. You know, let's, uh, let's hurry up and fix this. Let's pray about it. Let's, uh, let's hope, cross our fingers and hope that things get better. And, uh, you know, we're just going to move along. Nothing to see here. You know, those days have to be over. Right. Um, we've got to handle this better as a church. Yeah, we definitely do. And I wanted to ask, like, if you had to grade the church at large, I know you consult with a lot of different churches and I, I find it encouraging, you know, the stories that you tell of churches that are getting it right. And that is super encouraging, but I think I can speak for many, many victims when I say that those churches seem to be very few and far between. And in so many of our experiences, we've, we're dealing with churches who do things wrong, but if you had to like overall give the church a grade, how would you grade the church at large regarding their response to sexual abuse within the church? A to F. Oh, I would say generally speaking, my experience, I've been doing this for nine years now. Um, my experience, generally speaking, I would rate it an F minus. Wow. With that said, you know, there are, cause I don't want to paint this picture that all churches are unsafe. All churches are, are bad. All churches get it wrong. Cause that's just not true. Um, I just consulted with the church this past week. I was absolutely floored in a good way at how quick, how responsive they were and how well they, they handled things. And, you know, part of me felt guilty charging a consulting fee because they made my job really easy. The amount of wisdom among this leadership team, um, the statement that they wrote to the church, um, uh, you know, they sent it to me and I was basically correcting grammar, <laughs> you know, as far as content. And it was like two grammatical errors and they were so minor. And I looked at the statement and I was like, wow, like this is, if every church could respond this well, we wouldn't have a problem in the church. Right. Um, but that's, I mean, that those churches are so few and far, far between. And uh, that just blows my mind that there are so right. few of them that, that handle abuse allegations well. Can I ask what, what you think it is about that church in particular? Do you know what is it about that church, maybe the people who are there, or what they've been taught, that they knew the proper response? You know, one of the first things that I noticed is that, the, I mean, I, I don't know that this had a whole lot of bearing, but just in, in my mind and in my experience, I tend to think that it does. But the first person to reach out to me was a woman on the leadership team. And 
when I consulted with them, there was an equal number of men and women represented. And each of them had an equal say. There was none of this weird, you know, like, pack the room full of men and we'll talk to our wives when we get home. Like, that's my tradition. You know, the churches of Christ are incredibly androcentric. Women are are very rarely, if ever, involved in any leadership decisions, uh, even small ones. And I think that's I think that really hurts the church, regardless of what your theology is on women's roles and you know all this all this stuff. Like, regardless of of where people stand, like we have got to have conversations together with men and women who have wisdom when it comes to to handling the schemes of Satan. You know, right? Like that's not a man's issue. That men are the only ones equipped to be able to handle those kinds of uh, decisions. Because oftentimes it, it's it's typically the men who are the abusers, and so right. you have a group full of men who are trying to figure out, well, how, you know, how do we figure this out? Uh, so I, you know, I was really encouraged that they had men and women who are who are equally involved in this thought process and in sharing wisdom, and just people who are really in tune with the Holy Spirit and common sense and. Yeah, you know, I think that I think that really played an important role. It's just my opinion. Yeah, no, I mean that makes sense. Um, a lot of times, I think that it's almost looked at as as though women are more emotional. I mean, which I'm not going to argue that, um, but I think that sometimes that's like frowned upon the differences between you know men and women, and some you know I know a lot of very emotional men, and <laughs> I know a lot of sure. very non-emotional yeah. women, but. Um, I don't know. Sometimes it's just like, you know, frowned upon. I, I almost feel like we're celebrated for taking a non-emotional approach toward things. And I'm a super emotional person. I wear my heart on my sleeve the majority of the time. So sure. um, I, I feel like that's one reason where almost in my experience, like coming forward about my abuse, where I almost felt afraid to show emotion because I didn't want to be viewed as like the hysterical woman that, you know, yeah, just yeah. is a ball of emotions. You know, and that's an interesting point too, because I, I, I don't understand where this idea came from that expressing emotion is a negative or immature thing, because I think that's such a healthy component that, you know, regardless of what you think about the difference between men and women and, you know, maybe some are more emotional than others, uh, you know, who knows, whatever. Like, right. that's not the point. <laughs> it's not really the point of the discussion. But, you know, e even if it's true that that women generally tend to wear their emotions more on the sleeves, wouldn't you want that component when you're dealing with people who've been severely wounded? Right. To have that level of compassion and care and anger towards unrighteousness, anger towards people who, you know, they defile people in the worst possible ways, like dehumanize them. Exactly. Isn't a little bit of righteous anger a good thing? Yeah, I totally think so. I, I feel like, you know, even just looking at scripture, when you see where, where Jesus was emotional and um, not necessarily just being like stoic and super logical about everything. Yeah. Um, we see, we see yeah. a lot of emotion, especially in, in how, you know, he warned people who would hurt little ones. And so 
Okay, my dog has decided she wants to cry now. So. Well, you know, anyway. it's funny too is, yeah, so I never ever, well, I shouldn't say never. I rarely lose my voice. I'm like, I'm losing my voice today because of my allergies. Oh, goodness. So this is like twice in a row now that you and I have have spoken. Right. <laughs> my voice is gone. In October. Maybe. That was October <laughs> of last year. I remember. <laughs> I remember. And now I feel like maybe I'm jinxing you somehow because. I think yeah, you are too. Common I'm, I'm denominator. not going to lie. <laughs> I am uninvited to any further speaking engagements. <laughs> from this here is on terrible. Out. <laughs> okay, so we've got you with no voice and my dog crying for stupid reasons. <laughs> we're in good shape. <laughs> we're in great shape. So I want to ask, um, because I feel like what you went through, like I can't imagine, and I don't even like I can't wrap my brain around like discovering that one of the people closest to you in the world who you've admired and who's been in ministry and who probably led you to the Lord was doing these horrific things. Like I can't wrap my brain around it. And I almost feel like for a lot of people that would just drive you to want absolutely nothing to do with the world of sexual abuse and um, all that it entails. And I feel like you would be justified if that were your feeling like this happened. Yeah. Don't want to think about it. Goodbye. So what has driven you? since you discovered what you discovered about your dad and you went through that whole process and all of that basically hell that your whole family had to go through, what drives you like day in, day out to keep on advocating? Because you do, like you're doing so yeah. much for sexual abuse victims and, and for churches. And what is it that has driven you to not go the opposite way? Yeah. So, I mean, I, it really created this immediate conundrum um, because the bigger part of me does want nothing to do with abuse, especially when I first found out, you know, like I had to, I had to learn the learning curve is tremendous. It's very steep. Um, and the burnout rate in advocacy work is through the roof. Right. Um, I didn't want anything to do with it. That was the last thing that I wanted to do. I didn't want to go out and start talking about abuse. There's a million things that that I could talk about as a public speaker, you know, as a pastor, as a public speaker. I'm a trained public speaker. Um, there's a million things. I could go out and be a motivational speaker to, you know, kind of talk to people about how to how to inspire them to to be productive at work, you know, stuff like right. that. There's a million different things that I could talk about. Um and I think what really what really shoved me into advocacy was was being so haunted by the fact that I was I was incredibly close to my dad. I mean, we were best friends. And I don't mean that like you know, he was he was pretending to be the cool parent and you know, we hung out together and you know, like I don't mean it in that sense. I mean quite literally he was my best friend. We were very close. And I lost a lot of sleep right away because I felt guilty that I could be in my mind so stupid that I missed it, that, you know, I knew he was skilled. I knew that there, you know, there were things that he was doing to hide the abuse. I kind of had a general sense of that, but that sense of betrayal, um, it ran really deep. And then combined with that, because I was so close to my dad, um, 
I wrote about this in, in my book that is going to be coming out in February. Woo-hoo. So I'll put a little plug in for that. Yay. Um, so I wrote about this in the book and I, you know, I, I just kind of went back and I was thinking about this and there were certain things that I couldn't control. Like, you know, survivors can't control menacing thoughts that they're just intruding, uh, flashbacks, things like that. I was not abused. So I didn't have, I didn't have flashbacks, um, you know, that my mind went back to, but what was happening is that, you know, I couldn't control when this happened and I couldn't stop it when it began to happen. But like, I would see body parts of my dad on me. So like at the time I had a 15 month old daughter, my, my oldest kid is, um, she's 10 now. She was 15 months old at the time that my dad was arrested. And I would go to, you know, do something simple, like pick her up or change a diaper and I would look and I would literally see my father's hands touching my baby. And it just, it, it made me freak out. And I was like, I can't do this. Um, I can't, I can't bury this stuff. I can't push this stuff down and pretend like this stuff didn't happen. I've got to figure it out so that, so, you know, especially when I looked at my own daughter, um, I was like, this could have been her. Um, she very well could have been one of his victims or one of his next victims. And that absolutely crushed me and it made me angry. And so I, you know, a big part of me wanted to research to protect my own children. Right. Um, And so I just started buying every book that I could find on child sexual abuse that was written by every professional, every researcher, every scholar. I mean, I had mountains of books. And I mean, I was immersed in them in an unhealthy way. And one day my wife came home from work and I was sitting on the living room floor, sitting crisscrossed applesauce, as we call it up here in Pennsylvania. <laughs> and uh, and I have all these books around me and I just, I mean, I was absolutely emotionally spent. I was done. And she walked through the door and she said, Hasn't what your dad done to our family been enough for you? Why why are you doing this to yourself? And I, I didn't even hesitate. And I just looked up at her and I was like, because I have to. I was like, I'm, I'm, not, I'm not asking you for compassion or understanding. Like, I don't even expect you to understand because I don't understand why I have to do this. But all I know is, I can't stop. I can't stop learning. I've got to get inside of his head and figure this out. I've got to figure out how he fooled every single person in his life for more than 40 years. So that still, to this day, that still drives me. But then there's a positive push too. Like a big motivator is when I do trainings and pedophiles get caught. There is a tremendous sense of joy and excitement. And I know some people are like, well, that shouldn't make you excited. But it does because these guys don't stop. Right. If if there was something that where they got caught and, you know, maybe they had repented and, you know, hadn't thought about abusing a kid for years, maybe I would feel bad then. Um, but I don't feel bad. I I get motivated. I get excited 
when I do a training and somebody's like, hey, we had this guy who for 30 years, nobody had a clue he was abusing kids, but we were able to pick this guy out. And, you know, we started talking to people and, and lo and behold, victims came forward and they felt freedom to be able to share those stories. And, you know, we reported it and uh, this guy went to the police and, uh, you know, they found all this evidence and the guy's now in jail. Like, to me, that's a huge win. And that motivates me. For sure. Um, and the, you know, and a final component, and it's equally as important, is knowing that survivors are validated. I've lost count of the number of emails where people, have, they've sent me messages and they're like, thank you for believing your sister. And I'm like, of course I believed her. What other option was there? Um, but I know what these survivors are saying, and some of them will even qualify that, and they'll say, because nobody believed me. And I'm like, that. Right. what a terrible, what a terrible way to try to push yourself through the rest of your life knowing that nobody believed you. Or, and I'll just add this component to it, because I think that you know, there are survivors. When I finally came forward, I mean, the the age that I was, I was in my mid thirties, and I I don't recall anybody not believing me. Honestly, like, I mean, yeah. I don't know about my abuser's family because I didn't speak to them, but pretty much everybody I told was like, right on, we believe you. But I think that it's the response that even if you're believed, that there's not enough. I, I don't know, like, I don't want to say compassion or empathy, but the reaction that you get, even if you're believed a lot of the time is it just sucks, you know, like we believe you. However, yeah. the Lord is gracious and merciful and we need to forgive. And, you know, mm -hmm. maybe yeah. in six months or so when I'm not so busy, I can do something about the fact that this, you know, child abuser is still within the church. So I think that for, I'm sure for like, obviously the victims who haven't been believed and there are so many, that that that's why your story just kind of amazes them. But I think that from victims, even if we were believed, your reaction to being told and what you did in response to it is like, it's the perfect validation for survivors. And most of us did not and do not get that. We just don't, yeah. you know, for you to, for yeah. you to be like, this happened to someone, even as a family member, Jimmy, because there are so many people who have told their family who've told parents, who've told siblings, who've told people that should care the way that you cared and they get a completely different reaction than that. Like, right. Well, it might how have dare you? Yeah. How dare yeah. you accuse a family member exactly. and why would you make this up? Yeah, exactly. So I think that your response to, to your sister disclosing to you is, is validating for people who weren't believed, but also for people who were believed, but nothing was done or the reaction just, just sucked, you know? And yeah. so, I, I mean, I think that, I think that that's one of the reasons that, that people are just able to, I don't know, like, I mean, there are not a whole lot of advocates who didn't experience sexual abuse themselves. Um, and at least that I, right. that I know of, um, it has to kind of, and I touched on this in a podcast recently, but if you don't have some skin in the game, you're, you're likely not going to care a whole bunch about sexual abuse. And yeah. 
you know, so we know they're not in it for the money. Exactly. <laughs> <laughs> I like to tell people my podcast has made $35. So <laughs> yep. <laughs> worth that year of hard labor, you know, I know. we're not getting rich off of advocacy, but I, I understand like when you say like, why are you doing this? Because I have to, that feeling of it is just what drives us in, in so many cases, but, um, I understand why people react so strongly to to your response to someone disclosing abuse to you because it's not yeah. something we see a lot. Yeah. Well, and you know, as a pastor myself, the the Christian community, like we've kind of built up this this grandiose uh, you know, celebrity pastor movement, like grow these yes. big, you know, people hopping up and down on the website, you know, dressed in their ripped jeans, um, churches and they're, you know, not, I don't want to say they're completely superficial, but there's this facade that churches are putting up and survivors of abuse know all too well what happens when people put facades up, you know, because their abusers have been keeping this, this well-maintained facade for their entire lives. And that's how they're able to, to hide behind that facade and go into closed rooms and, you know, and abuse. And in churches, it's, it's no different. And, um, you know, you have a uh, look at the scandal at Mars Hill and, you know, pick a church, pick a mega church and look at the scandals that happen behind closed doors with everything from verbal abuse to sexual abuse to on and on and on and on. And I think, we just have built this culture that quote unquote, for the sake of the church wants to sweep everything under the rug and make it look like the church has it all together because otherwise the church isn't going to grow. And so in the end, they justify their behavior by saying, well, we're doing this for the kingdom. We're asking you to, to remain silent about the abuse that you allege for the sake of the kingdom. Well, why in the world would you put that burden on the shoulders of a survivor who needs validation, who needs other people's hearts to be rended, uh, to be broken on their behalf? You know, why would you place on their shoulders this, um, this kind of innate threat to remain silent and say, it's for the sake of the kingdom? Right. You know, it's just, it's, it's this really awful cycle that we've created that's incredibly hard to break. It is. And I, I've, it just baffles me that we struggle so much as like, as Christians, like as a group with truth, like there's always some way to sort of rearrange it to, to make the truth something that should not be told unless it's very specific things. Like we have no problem being like, Jesus is the way, the truth and the life. But yeah. to tell the truth yeah. and to just be honest about reality, it seems like we we want to just kind of move things around and and make it so that somehow that's ungodly. And I feel like, I mean, I don't feel like <laughs> force of habit, but it's just true. That, <laughs> you're, like, so, truth, you're so emotional, Kelly. I know. I'm so emotional. I say I feel like all the time. And then I'm like, well, it really I isn't a feeling. It's just reality. <laughs> but I mean, the reality is if you look at, if you look at scripture, if you look at like everything that we know about God, it's that he did not ever shrink back from the truth about anything, even if it would, 
I mean, I don't want to say make him look bad, but potentially because, you know, when you see some of the things that were done by people who claim to be Christians in scripture, and if God was super concerned with his reputation, he would have just like deleted those parts from scripture. So nobody knew about them. And it we're just instead told that to speak the truth about evil is somehow to gossip or to to not be like kind to a brother in Christ or a sister in Christ. And it's like, I, I it just bothers me so much that the church struggles with just, just saying what reality is and just openly admitting it and, and being transparent. Yeah. Well, I mean, I was kind of thinking the same thing. Like, you know, we're so worried about reputation and the way people think about us and perception is everything. And, what do they call it in politics? In politics, they call it optics. The optics really matter. You know, be careful when you're out in public, you know, behind closed doors, do what you want. But in public, it's all about the optics, you know, and we're, we're no different in the church. Um, and I think that's what set Jesus apart from everybody else. He did not care what people thought about him. He really didn't. Um, and I think we need to adopt that same attitude and I've gotten better at it. You know, I, I try not to let what people think about me affect affect me personally. Um, you know, in, in the end, we're still human. But right. I've had people tell me before, like, you know, so-and-so from church, like somebody who's really well-liked and prominent or whatever, they're like, you know, they're, they're really, really upset with you. Okay, well, what did I do? Well, they just don't like that, you know, you're, you know, and it's whatever. It's something really trivial. Nothing that I did. It's just, it's just like a personality quirk or whatever. And right. I, you know, my response now is like, I don't care. Um, <laughs> <laughs> you know, like, do, are do they love Christ? Are they saved? Uh, yeah, of course. Okay, well then, let's move on. Like, I'm not here to make friends. I'm not on this earth to make friends. And I know that sounds uh, antithetical to a lot of church people. Because we're told, like, you know, be kind to everybody and, and uh, try to try to reach everybody and treat everybody with kindness. Well, I'm all about treating people with kindness, but I'm not here to be friends with everybody. Right. Um, Jesus didn't go around trying to have campfires and sing kumbaya around the campfire, <laughs> making friends with people, roasting marshmallows, you know? <laughs> <laughs> like... He sent his disciples out, and one of the first things he tells them, first of all, he tells them not to take anything with them except the clothes on their back. But then he says something that's really intriguing, and I've always glossed over this because we're just not trained to hear these verses in in church culture. But Jesus says, if anybody greets you on the road, keep going. Don't talk to people when they greet you on the road. That's interesting. Hmm. Um, and I went back and I, like, I really analyzed that because I'm an analytical thinker. It's what I do. And I was like, why would he tell his disciples not to, not to even talk to people who greet them on the road? And then I think about it and and I'm like, he sent them on a mission. Right. And their mission was not to be buddy, buddy with people and, and make friends. And, you know, like, I imagine it was the same 2000 years ago that it is today. People people get friendly with people and you strike up conversations. And next thing you know, three hours has gone by and you know, you're still talking about nothing. And I think Jesus was just driven by mission. Right. And uh, you know, his mission was to free the oppressed 
to set the captives free, um, to clothe people who needed clothing, uh, feed the hungry. That was his mission. And in anything that got in the way of that, including conversations along the road, was detracting from that mission. And, and, and we're, we're so afraid to be like that in the church because we're, we're like, well, that's, that's going to come off as me being rude. That's not rude. That's just, that's valuing your time. Well, I think that to do what you do, that, that kind of, I think it serves you well, (laughs) those, those feelings and, and kind of that mentality, it, it serves you well to be able to stay on mission and to be able to, to focus on, on the work that you're doing. And it is just human nature that we, we want to be liked, but I found that the more that you're in this world of advocacy, the more opportunities you have to not be liked. Um, people who have suffered from abuse and people who realize that the work is important are, you know, they'll be cheering you on, but I feel like there are so many more people in the world who think that we should just shut up about abuse Absolutely. And you step on toes. I mean, I've down to like family that they don't want you to say anything about abuse because they don't want sure. their world to be upset and, and put in turmoil. And it's, I feel like it's easy to make, I don't want to say make enemies, but kind of in, in this world, because for whatever reason, there are many people who just prefer the status quo and they don't want anything upset. Yeah. No, you're a hundred percent right. And I think everybody in advocacy feels this, that it it gets very lonely very fast. And I think that contributes to the burnout rate because you're already dealing with incredibly heavy, heavy, real, raw, emotional stuff. And it affects all of us, regardless of how calloused we become. At the end of the day, it it really affects us Um, physically, emotionally, spiritually, it really, really draws on us. And so added to that component is, yeah, you're right. Like, you know, we can't not think about abuse. We can't not think about broken people. Uh, It's just always on our mind. It's always on our radar. And so, you know, we have to be intentional about conversations not leading to abuse, but inevitably it does because people are like, well, what do you do? (laughs) I'm like, do you really want to open that can of worms? (laughs) (laughs) Um, and so when you start to talk about it, it makes people really uncomfortable. Um, and people, especially who are not accustomed to hearing really difficult things, it, they just, they shut down and I'm not blaming them. It's just what happens. And so I think that's part of why some people are like, you know, I'd rather, rather you hadn't said anything about that. Uh, let's right. let's be moving on. Then you get your other people who are demanding that you shut up and that <clears throat> you hate the church because you talk about abuse and you're making the church look bad. And right, you know, I've been told I don't believe in redemption. I don't believe in forgiveness. Uh, you know, all kinds of things. I'm a fake pastor. I had a guy tell me that once at a training that I did. Um, <laughs> fake pastor. <laughs> yeah. Like, oh. can you turn that into a bumper sticker? I'll pay right. you. Like, fake <laughs> faster. You don't like a- me, but I kind of like that for a bumper sticker. If you could um just turn that into one and send me a bill, that'd be cool. 
you're a fake pastor. That's awesome. JimmyHinton.org, fake, fake pastor. <laughs> fake pastor. You could change your website and just have it redirect from fakepastor.com to, to I like website. it. I like oh, it. Oh, goodness. Like, that's, it's crazy, but it's true. Like, people... I, I think that, I mean, part of it, there's like, we could probably sit and try and pick it apart for 500 years and, and come up with a million reasons why people are that way. But I think one of the main ones is we don't like to look too closely at brokenness and we don't like to look through too closely at trauma because if any part of it hits home, like it, it disrupts so much of what we believe about life and the way that we view, you know, people don't like to have their realities yeah. messed with. And even if I won't even say reality, but what they perceive is their reality, they don't want that upset in any way. And when they discover that, okay, in this church where I feel like everybody is just, you know, we're all here to serve Jesus and maybe I don't like some people, but it's just personality differences, but everybody loves the Lord. Teehee, we're all having a great time. And, you know, then you tell them, actually, there are some people here in this church who are just flat out evil and who are here because they want to do evil things and we need to expose it. Like it just totally disrupts like people's realities and they can't handle it. Um, yeah. And I actually have some empathy for that. Like I understand, like you don't want, you don't want things to be upset, but if it's the truth, it comes back to what is real and what is the truth. And if this is happening in our church, why do we need to be quiet about it? The Bible tells us to expose evil and that that's within the church. And we kind of gloss over that. It's like our version of having nothing to do with the evil deeds of darkness is to not talk about them. And I don't think yeah. that that's what the scripture means. Yeah, no, I agree. hundred percent. Well, we are going to pause right there and end this portion of the interview with Jimmy Hinton. But on next week's episode of Survivor Sanctuary, you got to tune back in for part two with Jimmy, where we are going to start delving into how to spot abusers and some of the work that Jimmy does in his consulting that is completely fascinating. And if you are in a church, if you even just attend weekly or you're in leadership of any kind, a Sunday school school teacher, a youth leader, a pastor, you definitely don't want to miss next week's episode of Survivor Sanctuary because we're going to dive in deep on how to spot abusers, the techniques that abusers use, and some other really great resources for church leaders and anyone who attends a church, really, because we can all be a part of the solution of preventing and responding well to sexual abuse within the church. Well, join me next week for part two with Jimmy. I will see you then. Thanks for listening to Survivor Sanctuary with me, Kelly Downing. If you found value in today's podcast, please leave us a review on iTunes. Not only will it put a big smile on my face, more importantly, your reviews will help make it easier for other survivors and survivor advocates to find this podcast. Also, make sure you subscribe to Survivor Sanctuary wherever you listen to podcasts so you never miss an episode. You can also join the conversation in our Survivor Sanctuary Facebook group. And for exclusive content, be sure to visit SurvivorSanctuary.com. Join me next time for another episode of Survivor Sanctuary. See you then.